Returning back to the Word of God where we were reading from, and that's in the book of Hebrews, the chapter 9, and we're looking at verse 27 and verse 28. So the final two verses in the chapter of Hebrews 9, verse 27, and also verse 28. You'll know if you weren't here this morning that we took a theme that related to the events in our country, that is the passing of Elizabeth II, and the theme was London Bridge is Down. Some people were wondering when they saw the title, what is that about? And I hope they discovered uh, what it was about, that it's simple code that they have in royal circles for when the monarch would die. And it was there for no one when she did die as the London Bridge operation, getting all the news out to the various people that needed to know, and then getting everything in place for the days to come. But while London Bridge is dying, the Queen is dead, in other words, God is still on the throne. And we took the passage in Isaiah, the chapter 6 where the prophet of God was receiving his call, his marching orders, and he tells us the historical context was when King Uzziah died, a king that had served long on the throne of Judah, 50-plus years, had died, created a void, and the work of Reformation was basically parked at that stage, if not just before him, and yet God had a voice for the nation. And he called a man and proved that he still was himself on the throne. We're taking the topic tonight, the passing of our beloved queen and the realities of death, judgment, and eternity. They're always in focus whenever someone passes away, but how much more so whenever someone of such prominence is now passing on? So verse 27 and 28 of Hebrews chapter 9, and as it is appointed unto man once to die, but after this the judgment, so Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many, and unto them that look for him shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation." With God's Word open before us, we'll bow, please, in a further word of prayer. Our Heavenly Father, again, we seek Thy face tonight. We know, as the disciples said to Thee in the past, the question was put to them, will ye also go away? And their response, Lord, to whom else can we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. And Father, we pray that even if it isn't in our mind and in our heart at this moment in time, even if it isn't in the mind and the heart of those that may be tuned in over the internet tonight and watching the service here, or will tune in in days to come and catch up, uh, we pray, Lord, that Thou will put it in our heart and in our mind. Sober thoughts, solemn considerations, careful calculations whereby we will do what Moses demanded and advised in the Psalm 90, that Thou will teach us to number our days, that we may apply our hearts unto wisdom, that we will consider how short, relatively short in the light of other events and things that our time on earth really is. And certainly, 
in contrast to the unendingness of eternity, then life on earth is a very short span indeed. Come therefore and touch our hearts tonight, and may our minds be fixed on realities and eternal truths and the kind of material that God in His grace would prompt us concerning and challenge, challenge us by through His eternal Word. Answer prayer. It was good tonight. Speak to hearts and encourage and lift up those souls who are burdened at this time, none less so our royal family. In our Savior's name we pray. Amen. When Elizabeth Alexandra Mary Windsor was born on the 21st of April 1926, in a house just off Berkeley Square in London, the throne of England that day seemed so very far away. She was the first child of Albert, the Duke of York, who himself was the second son of George V, and also his duchess, the former Lady Elizabeth Bowes Lyon. Both Elizabeth and her sister, Margaret Rose, who was born in 1913, were educated at home, and they were brought up in a loving family atmosphere. Elizabeth, we're told, was extremely close to both her father and also her grandfather, George V. At the age of six, she told her riding instructor that she wanted to become a country lady with lots of horses and dogs. Despite not attending school, she proved very adept at languages, and she was coming to study even in those early years. Constitutional history, and no doubt that did serve her very well in later years. And in case someone's thinking, well, she was a bit of a recluse here and very protected and not getting out into society at all, well, there was a special girl guides company that was formed, the first Buckingham Palace girl guides company, and that was formed so that she could socialize with girls of her own age. Everything, as we know, changed for the family in 1936 when her uncle Edward VIII abdicated to marry Wallace Simpson, a divorcee. And then Elizabeth's shy and stammering father was pushed into the spotlight, compelled to assume the throne, and took on the title George VI. And that put Elizabeth then next in line to the throne of the kingdom. The coronation of her father as King George VI gave Elizabeth a foretaste of what was lying ahead of her, and she later wrote that during the service, she thought the service itself was very, very wonderful. In 1939, by then the 13-year-old princess accompanied the king and the queen to the Royal Naval College at Dartmouth. Together with her sister Margaret, she was escorted by one of the cadets, her third cousin, Prince Philip of Greece. And we know how the story ended there. She courted him. She married on the 20th of November, 1947, in Westminster Abbey. Now, for a short time, right at the beginning of the marriage, they had a little bit of peace and quiet and a little bit of seclusion from all the demands of society around. They were posted to Malta, and they were able to live a relatively normal life. 
The first child, Charles, was born in 1948, followed by a sister, Anne, who arrived in 1950. But then the king, her father, having suffered considerable distress during the years of the Second World War, he had been diagnosed as being terminally ill with lung cancer. In January of 1952, Elizabeth, then 25 years of age, set off with Philip on an overseas tour, and the king, against medical advice at the time, he went along to the airport to wave that couple off. That was to be the last time when Elizabeth would see her father alive. The news of the death of the king came through to her while they're staying in a game lodge in Kenya, and the new queen, as she became, quickly returned to London. That's how her accession to the throne happened, almost, as some historians have put it, an accident of history. In a way, she says, I did not have an apprenticeship. My father died much too young. So it was all a very sudden kind of taking on and making the best job you can. But 70 years later, I would imagine all of us will say that she did take on and do the very best job that could have been expected. And after a fabulous and illustrious reign, our beloved queen herself died peacefully on Thursday afternoon past at her Scottish estate, Balmoral, aged 96. Her son, now King Charles III, said the death of his beloved mother was a moment of great sadness for him and for the family, that her loss would be deeply felt around the world. He said as well, we mourn profoundly the passing of a cherished sovereign and a much-loved mother. I know her loss will be deeply felt throughout the country, the realms and the commonwealth, and by countless people around the world. Now, undoubtedly, that's the case. And I think the overwhelming show of grief since is testament to the fact that he was absolutely right in what he predicted there. But what the death of her queen also does is it focuses our minds upon these great subjects of death and about judgment and eternity as well. And the first thing we're looking at in the main tonight is the certainty of death. Turning to our text in the book of Hebrews, the chapter 9, the verse 27, we're told here it is appointed unto men once to die. Apparently, there's a fig tree in India. The branches there, they grow to a certain height. And then when they get to that height, they begin to go downwards again. They bend over them, and they go downward toward the ground. In many ways, that's a symbol of human life. And I think we can see the process all around us. Came from the dust when first created by the hand of Almighty God. And we're going to, the Bible tells us, return to the dust again. And proof of that is all around us. Putting that another way, we're saying that death is inevitable. And isn't that what our text is announcing here? It is appointed unto men once to die. The psalmist puts out a question in Psalm 89 and the verse 48. What man is he that liveth 
and shall not see death. Shall he deliver his soul from the hand of the grave? Solomon adds in his wisdom in Ecclesiastes 8 and 8, there is no man that hath power over the Spirit to retain the Spirit, neither hath he power in the day of death, and there is no discharge in that war. What's he saying? Well, really, when a baby comes into the world and is born, effectively war is declared on death. We're going to live and we're going to enjoy life and we're going to grow up and we're going to develop and we're going to put all thoughts of our demise to the back of our minds here and the battle can reach. And in many cases, that battle can reach 70 years or more, 80 years or more. In our Queen's case, over 90 years. But while the battle rages and we are fighting against death and its encroachments all along the line, there is no discharge in that war. We can apply our face creams. We can get polyfiller to fill all the wrinkles and all of that. We can get even a few facelifts and maybe some skin tucks and skin the bank balance at the same time and all of that process. And all we're doing is trying to halt the aging process. But it's inexorable. Death fights on until it wins. And we can undergo therapy to combat and fight against disease in our body, but death is going to cling on resolutely, and it will claim us as its victim. There only were two men in Bible times that we read about who never died, simply because God took them, Enoch and Elijah. But those were exceptions rather than the rule. And it does not negate what we're reading here in Hebrews 9 and the verse 27. It is appointed unto man once to die. We all shall die. The reality, the inevitability of death. Now, of course, Buckingham Palace has made some announcements about death over the years. Announced the death of Prince Philip, Duke of Edinburgh, on the 9th of April, 2021. The palace statement said then, It is with deep sorrow that Her Majesty the Queen announces the death of her beloved husband. She herself was no stranger to the cold hand of death. Her father had died, of course. Her mother died many years later. Now her loyal companion over all of those years, Prince Philip, succumbed as well to the hand of death on this occasion. And it wasn't said by her at the time, but a statement that Queen had made years ago was then rebroadcast through the media on the death of Prince Philip, a quotation of hers, and that is, grief is the price we pay for love. This death, it is absolutely certain. It is inevitable. More than that, it's impartial. Because here we have a queen, and I mentioned from this pulpit last Lord's Day evening the fact, and we were talking about the new birth and how the natural birth for all of us is the same, whether we come into the world as Queen Elizabeth, as she did in the palace, or whether we come into life as Elizabeth Queen, who's out in some unfortunate corner of our world, maybe some slum area. 
maybe born to a homeless mother in very trying and difficult circumstances. But death, birth is the same for all, and death is the same for all. It's the great leveler as well. It's impartial. It is appointed unto men once to die. A bit like the postman, and he comes to the doors of the poor and of the rich as well. To somebody, they're getting an invitation to a wedding, and there's gladness about that. Maybe to the neighbor next door, they're getting tidings of the death of a friend. One man is getting cheering news that all of a sudden, he's got a little bit of interest, and it's improving slightly at the moment, and therefore his bank balance is looking a little bit prettier than what it did before. But to another, they're getting devastating news in their letter of bankruptcy and disaster. Death is no respecter of persons, of position, or age. Paul summed it up well when he declared in Romans 5 and the verse 12 that by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. Let me give you a quotation. Our queen announcing the death of her husband, grief is the price we pay for love. Death, the inevitability, the impartiality, the certainty of death. And we are best not treating like a football that we just push on down and keep kicking down the road, thinking, well, you know what's happening to other people? But it won't happen to me. Or yes, it's happened to the queen, really. It was expected. Yes, it was a shock, but she was 96. What about that young father traveling our motorway during the week, going to pick up his partner, a newborn baby from hospital, off the road, dead at 21 years of age? the certainty of death. But then secondly, the consequences of death. We read in our text here in Hebrews 9 to verse 27, it is appointed unto man once to die, but after this, the judgment. After this, the judgment. It's very clear from the teaching of the Bible that death is not the end of life. It's rather a change in our experience and our existence and in our life. It's the doorway to what follows after, into the afterlife. The verdict pronounced on this day of judgment, it is appointed unto man once to die, and after that the judgment, the verdict that will be announced on that particular day will determine the eternal destiny of every man and every woman. The judgment. Get rid of that absurd notion that man can simply embrace annihilationism. That man can simply live as a dog, be buried like a dog, and that's the end of it all. And you don't need to worry what happens beyond the grave. No man who treasures any sense of justice can believe that wrong is going to dander on and dander on and keep meandering around and never be unpunished. Many people will say, well, though justice may not be served in this life to certain people, 
We are trusting it'll happen and be well served in some afterlife. And God has promised it certainly will. In the book of Acts, chapter 17, to verse 31, Paul is preaching on Mars Hill in Athens, and he's speaking to a very educated, sophisticated audience, and they're wanting to hear new things and get their teeth into a big discussion about the new thing. And Paul preaches and he says, I need you to know God has appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man, that is Jesus Christ, whom he hath ordained, whereby he hath given assurance unto all men, and that he hath raised him from the dead. Our Lord has been raised from the tomb to be the judge of all on that final day. And so the period for the judgment has been ordered already. Paul tells us God has appointed a day in which he will judge the world. Just as it is, Hebrews 9.27, appointed unto man once to die, so the day of the judgment that follows has also been appointed. And we can't read the Bible honestly at all without being impressed by God's strange work of judgment. And if God didn't spare the angels, and he didn't at the beginning of creation, if he didn't spare the archangels, if he didn't spare men that rebelled against him all down through the centuries of time, and he didn't, if he didn't even spare his own son, who was bearing our sins on his body on the tree, First Peter 2 and verse 24, then how can we honestly entertain any hope that he's going to pass over us, miss us out, not see us on parade, and we will not be paying for our transgressions. The Bible asks the question, shall the judge of all the earth not do right? And the answer is, he definitely will. In 1 Peter 4 and verse 18, we read, If the righteous scarcely be saved, where shall the ungodly and the sinner appear? The period for the judgment has been set. The person for the judgment has been ordained already. We read what Paul said, God has appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he has ordained. And in case we're quibbling, well, is that the Son of Man? Is that the eternal God that's in view there? Jesus Christ? Well, during the span of our Lord's ministry on earth, he made it clear in John 5 and 22, for example, that the Father hath committed all judgment unto the Son. So the one who now walks amongst us, who speaks to us, who ministers to our heart, who sends his Holy Spirit to woo us into the arms of his salvation, who strives with us, who speaks with us, who shows grace and mercy to us right now, who brings his gospel message to our hearts, who calls upon us to trust in him, turn from sin, believe in his eternal gospel. He's walking among men as Savior today. He's standing at the entrance of that sinner's heart, but one day he is the judge of all of those who reject him. God has appointed him for that role. Not only the period for the judgment, the person for the judgment, but also the proof for the judgment has been offered. Paul to that collection of philosophers 
We're told they were Greeks and Epicureans and whatnot. They were the chief debaters there all around the Areopagus in, in Greece and so on. They're in there getting into the business. And Paul is saying, well, you'll want evidence here. Let me give you the evidence you need. God hath appointed a day in the which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained. Here's the proof. We're off. He hath given assurance unto all men in that he hath raised him from the dead. And the fact that our Lord Jesus Christ is alive today is God's seal on the fact that the judgment shall take place. It's the inevitable proof that man and woman will be assembled for the judgment on this appointed day before the appointed judge. Sometimes, maybe particularly at Easter, we'll sing pretty heartily, He lives. He lives. Christ Jesus lives today. And yet maybe we're forgetting that the one who is the adorable Savior will be the awesome judge at that great white throne. A character by the name of Bert Olney was a skeptic. And a young minister came to a local church, first charge, wet behind the ears, no experience, and Bert turned up just to criticize, make life difficult for the new pastor. And after the service, he said to that young minister, you did well, but you know, I've got to tell you, I don't believe in the infallibility of your Bible that it's correct in all places without error. And that young minister said to him, but didn't you hear what I preached tonight? It is a pointed unto man once to die, but after this, the judgment. And the skeptic said, ah, but listen to me. I can prove to you there's no such a thing as judgment after death. But the pastor tried to argue, and he said, but men do die. You don't dispute that. I mean, we, we do die. That's fact. It is appointed unto man once to die, but after this, the judgment. If the Bible's right in the first half of the text, then it's right in the second half. And Olney said, that's no argument, son. Let's get down to business and let's discuss the matter in regular argument form. The young preacher shook his head and he said, I'm here to preach the Word of God and not to argue over what it says. Just proclaim it. That's my business. But Bert Olney was not to be put off. He is really annoyed at this stage and as he turned and walked away, he left the young man with the remark, I don't believe you know enough about your Bible to argue over it anyway. That's why you're dodging it. Maybe you're right, came the reply. But just remember this, sir. It is appointed unto man once to die, but after that, the judgment. So the skeptic Bert Olney leaves for home. But it seems that the very tree toads, toads along the way seem to be singing that awful note in his ear, repeating that Bible verse, the scream he crossed, the frogs in the pond seem to his ears now to be croaking judgment, judgment. The next morning, Olney turns up at the young man's manse. I've come to see you about that verse of Scripture you gave to me last night. I've spent a terrible time since then. Those words have burned right into me. Tell me, he said, what must I do to be saved? I need to get rid of this torture. 
It wasn't argument, it never is, that won him. But it was a plain announcement of God's own word that made him a new creature in Christ. One of the old church fathers, Jerome, and you quote him with a red flag, but he did say, and we give him credit where credit is due, he did say on one occasion it seemed to him as if the trumpet of the last day was always sounding in his ear, and that trumpet was proclaiming, Arise, ye dead, and come to judgment. What about us? Are we thinking seriously about these things? Let me give you a quotation. And we could interpret it, I suppose, many different ways. But I was intrigued to see that our Queen had said, For me, the teachings of Christ and my own personal accountability before God provide a framework in which I try to lead my life. If there's one thing that we need to face up to, it is that we have a personal accountability before God. I'll not be answering for you, and you will not be answering for me. I'll not be bearing the punishment of your sin, and you'll not be taking the payment for mine. We have a personal responsibility before God. The Bible says every one of us shall give an account of himself unto God. Right now, how would that account look? Answering for ourselves, what's it like? How would it read? The certainty of death. Not only that, I'm thinking perhaps, perhaps, there was an echo in the ear of Elizabeth II that came down from the ceremony at her coronation. Because on that occasion, these words were said, When thou hadst overcome the sharpness of death, thou didst open the kingdom of heaven to all believers, this speaking of Christ, thou sittest at the right hand of God in the glory of the Father, we believe that thou shalt come to be our judge. Do you believe that? The Bible teaches that. There's no way around that. It is appointed unto man once to die, but after this, the judgment. So we've looked at the certainty of death, the consequences of death, and finally the conquest of death. And I'm pulling in the other verse in our text tonight. That's verse 28 as well as verse 27. Hebrews 9, 27 and 28, bringing them together, they belong together. And as it is appointed unto man once to die, but after this the judgment, so Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many. So the point that the apostle is making is this. We die once. There is one judgment. And so Christ offered one sacrifice. He was once offered to bear the sins of many. But you know what you have in these words as well? You have the conquest of death outlined. Sin entered the world. We know that. It resulted in death for all of the human race. But God sent His Son to die on Calvary's cross so that He might bear the sins of many and provide a salvation from the cause of death. Why did He come? 
Did our Lord Jesus enter this world just to be a little bit of ornamentation? To give a nice guideline here and a good maxim there? His mission is described in 1 John 3 and 8 and Hebrews 2 and verse 14. It is to destroy the works of the devil. To destroy him that had the power of death. That is the devil. The devil introduced death into that fair creation of God. That's why our Lord Jesus Christ entered the scene of time to defeat him, destroy his evil work, and deliver souls from his power. The cause of death being, of course, sin. The corrosion of death. To those who are in Christ, saved by grace, Paul lifts up a note of triumph and a challenge. And many times you will hear it spoken by a minister at a graveside, for example, or in a funeral service, and he'll be quoting that great chapter of resurrection in the Bible, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 55 to 57. O death, where is thy sting? O grief, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. And any lad, and the positive note comes in, but thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. We can't get the victory ourselves. We need to bring Christ in. He alone can save. The story has often been told, I'm sure you've heard it, of a proud girl who was ashamed of the disfigurements that were obvious on her mother. Other children pointed them out and sometimes laughed at those rather vivid markings. And the child was embarrassed and wished that my mother had been beautiful. One day she asked the story behind the scars. And she was told there was a great fire. Your life was in danger then. And it seemed that nobody and nothing could save you. And the mother frantically rushed into the blazing house and snatched her daughter from a cot and enfolded in her mother's arms. That baby had been carried to safety. But the mother's beauty had been sacrificed forever. Those scars would stay as long as she lived. The child listened to the story and she said, and you did that for me. Mother, you risked your life to save mine. Never again was she ashamed of her mother's scars, but was intensely proud. Jesus has taken the sting out of death for us, not by mere scars, but a sacrifice of his life, by the shedding of his blood, the cause of death, corrosion of death, the consternation of death. Many people, maybe you included, are afraid to die. You wouldn't want to have been in the queen's shoes back on Thursday. You wouldn't have want to have been in that young fellow in the car going down the motorway in his shoes either just the other day. Because you know, you wouldn't have been ready to meet God. It is appointed unto men once to die, and after this the judgment, and that's something you're not ready to face. In Old Testament times, the people of God were able to say, Psalm 23 and 4, Yea, though I walk, through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. 
Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. We have Paul the apostle, and he says, you know what, I'm, I'm caught in a street between two things. I'd love to depart and to be with Christ, and yet I know that I have ministry still to fulfill, and to abide in the flesh is more needful for you. But I tell you what, should the cord that ties me to earth be snapped today, and I go out into eternity, for me, Paul is saying, death holds no terror. Does it hold terror for you? And as it is appointed unto man once to die, but after this the judgment, so Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many. Again, I was rather encouraged in one of the Queen's Christmas addresses, and I noted a marked change in her tone and language, maybe just tipping past the millennium, or maybe tied in with the death of the Queen Mother and from that point on. But there was definitely a difference. You can see it if you check out the Christmas addresses. She certainly gets this right. God sent into the world a unique person, neither a philosopher nor a general, important though they are, but a Savior with the power to forgive. And that is what Hebrews 9, 27, 28 is all about. As it is appointed unto man once to die, but after this the judgment, so Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many. Generals have their uses, and philosophers too. But you can do without them and still go well in eternity. But you'll never go well in eternity without a Savior. And there only is one Savior, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's bow in prayer. Heavenly Father, we call upon thy name tonight, and we pray that we will face these realities, understand that death is certain, judgment is set, but there's a Savior from sin. And we pray that many will receive him, come to faith in Christ, and know the burden of sin rolled away for time and eternity. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.